Arizona in Phoenix, summer vacations in Phoenix, because it was cheap. So we could get an Airbnb and a house with a pool and, and just relax. And so we used to love to do that. And a couple summers ago, we were on our way back, though, to, to Southern California, and we were in California, and we happened to be in Thousand Palms. Now, Thousand Palms sounds like a really nice area, unless you've ever been through Thousand Palms. Um, it's hot, and it's deserty. It's, it's like just Arizona inside California is basically Thousand Palms. We stopped for lunch, and uh, we had our lunch, and we got back in the, the van, and we were a spectacle on vacation because there's seven of us, and we just pile everything into the minivan and just go. So... We, we pull out of the In-N-Out parking lot there in Thousand Palms, and uh, I notice as I go into the intersection of this busy four-lane sh- road that's out there to get back to the highway, that there's a little bit of a lag in my gas pedal. I, I press it, and the, the car's not really responding. In fact, it's kind of chugging. So I, I knew enough. I don't know a lot about cars, but I knew enough that's not what you want to have when you're getting on the highway. So I pulled off and got into a, a gas station parking lot there, and, and it happened to be a gas station with nothing else around, and it was just a tiny little, you know, kiosk-style gas station, and uh, turned the car off, which was mistake number one. Because then when I went to hit the button again to start the car, it, it nothing. Nothing. And so my extensive knowledge of cars said, well, it's got to be the battery. So I called AAA, and AAA came out, and uh, first they sent out a battery guy. And he came out with his jump thing and, and went up to the car and, and hooked it up. And he said, no, your battery's fine. I said, okay, well, what do you, how, do you, how are you going to fix this? Because it was 114 degrees. The car was off, no air conditioning. We had a tiny gas station where we were buying them out of Gatorade. It was the banner day for them because we were just buying all of their drinks. But I, I looked at the a, AAA guy like, what, what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, let me call one of our other guys who might be able to come out and do something. Well, the other guy got out there. And my kids are tired, and we're like two and a half hours from home at this point, or thereabouts, and so close, but, but not close enough that we want to spend the night in Thousand Palms. Um, and so I, I just was like, okay, we need this to happen. So we're just praying, God, please help this guy from AAA get the car up and running. And he got there, and he told me the same thing, well, it's not your battery. I said, yes, I, 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 we're, check, we're there, okay? <laughs> we can move past that. He said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Maybe I can figure out a way to, to get it up and running. I know a couple of tricks, but if I get this up and running, man, you, you can't stop all the way home. No problem. We're good. We'll just go. So um, he, by God's grace, was able to get our van started, and we drove it home, and, uh, and we made it back home, and then we figured out what was wrong with the car later. But all that to say, man, I, I knew need in a very desperate way, sitting in 114 degrees in a parking lot when my van didn't work on the way home from vacation. And I knew need in a way that, that pressed on me further because even my, my family was there. And I was thinking to myself, man, I, I don't want my wife and my kids sitting in this heat and we may have to stay in a hotel somewhere out here. And where's the van going to go? I, my need was palpable. We're going to find in John chapter two, uh, a need that was palpable for somebody. We're going to find in John chapter two, that Jesus meets this need. And in meeting this need for this family, what we're really going to find out is that Jesus is going to remind us through what he does here of his ability to abundantly provide for our greatest need. That AAA guy provided for my need and got me home. Man, I've got a way bigger need though than anything that has to do with the heat or the desert or a car not working. The Bible makes it very clear from the outset that my need is that I am alienated from a holy God because I am a sinner. And that need can only be met by Jesus. 
And so as we see Jesus in this miracle, do what he does in this chapter, it's about far more than what we see on the surface. What Jesus is showing us is that he can abundantly provide for that greatest need. The fact is that all of us have that need, that we are all sinners in need of the abundant provision of Christ. And the good news is he's provided it. So turn to John chapter 2 and let's look at what that looks like through this miracle. John chapter 2, this whole series is part of Jesus coming into focus. We're learning more about our Messiah, who he is, what he came to do. And we see more of that here in John chapter 2 as he's called his disciples. And we studied that last week, this first group of four or five of them that attach themselves to Jesus in that informal way. The formal call will come later, but they're, they're following him. They're tracking with him. And it just so happens that there's a family wedding, and it looks like all of them are invited. It says on the third day, in John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So this is north of Jerusalem. So picture this, Sea of Galilee is north of Jerusalem. The Jordan River connects all the way down. And then you've got the Judah and the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is down in the south there. Um, and so this is up north in Israel. Canaan of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, Mary. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Let's start there. On the third day, this is day seven from the, the delegation that was originally sent to John the Baptist. They come to John the Baptist, that's day one. What are you doing? We see the progression from there. Where we left off last time was day five. So this is day seven. And you're going, but wait a minute, this says on the third day. Shouldn't this be day eight? Well, day five would have been counted as day one because that's the Jewish method of reckoning. So they would have counted day five as one, and then the third day from day five would not have been eight days, but seven. And I think there's significance here. Again, John is giving us time markers as he's recording this for a reason, for a purpose. So seven days into the opening of Jesus' public ministry, he's here at this wedding, this celebration, this feast. And he's going to do something on this seventh day that's going to remind us of the completion of the fulfillment that's yet to come for us in the future when we enter into the heavenly rest with our Father. You remember creation, right? Six days the Lord created. What did he do on the seventh day? He rested. Jesus is going to be reminding us about that future rest that's ours through meeting that abundant need that we have. So this time marker, it's there. You may have wondered, okay, does this matter? I think it does. John is a master at the double meaning. He gives us the surface meaning, but he's also communicating something deeper there, and we'll see more of that as our text progresses. But there's this wedding. You, I'm sure, had a great wedding. Maybe. I hope you had a great wedding. Uh, I remember my wife and I's wedding. It was awesome, except I just spent the whole reception going, can we just go? Can we, can we be done with this? Like, this party's great, but let's just let them stay and party. Let's you and I go on. But, but this wedding in, in this day would have lasted, this is seven days in some families, okay? This is a feast. This is a party. This is uh, before the, the consummation where the bride and groom go off. This is just a, a grand celebration of the, the marriage that is occurring. And so this wedding is taking place there in Cana. We don't know how long it was. It depends upon the status of the family, though this family seems to be somewhat well off. They've got servants, as we're going to find out, that are working there in the house. So it could have been one of those longer multiple-day weddings. But it's there in Cana in, in Galilee, and it turns out that Jesus is invited along with his disciples. There's good reason for us to think that uh, this may have been a family wedding because when the wine runs out, which is the problem that surfaces here in a moment, Mary takes it on herself to address this need and address this problem. 
So why would Mary be concerned other than maybe this is one of her family members that she has this, this concern and this weight over the, the problem that's facing? But Jesus and his disciples are there. And I want you to think about this for a second. This is the first of Jesus' signs that we have recorded in Scripture, the first of his miracles. Now, Jesus could have burst on the scene anywhere. He could have done it at the Temple Mount. He could have done it in a synagogue. He could have done it just out on the, the road. He could have done it by walking on water. He could have done it by feeding the 5,000. Jesus could have done his first miracle anywhere, and yet he does it here at this celebration. He does it here at this wedding. He does it here at this marriage. And I think there's some significance in that that will bear itself out as we continue in the text. But Jesus is there with his disciples, and something horrible happens. The wine runs out. The wine runs out, and our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would feel that far more than we feel that this morning. <laughs> We're a bunch of teetotalers in here with Baptist roots, my, my guess is, right? But the wine runs out. Now, we need to talk about that, right? Let's, let's hit on this for a second, because let's address wine during the time of Jesus for a moment. Wine was one of the, what's called the, the triad of the Jewish diet, and it's described here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It was wine, it was grain, and it was oil. Those were the three building blocks of the Jewish diet. You might think to yourself, well, why was wine one of those building blocks? What was so significant about it? Well, wine at this time was always uh, mixed with the water. And the reason being is we have water treatment plants, we've got purification systems, we've got all of that technology today so that you can get your water from, although most of you probably still don't trust the tap, but you could go to the tap and turn it on and just drink your water straight out of the tap and be okay because we've got this system in place. They didn't have any of that during this day. So what they would do is they would take the, the wine, which had the alcoholic content to it, and when they would mix it with their water, the wine and the alcohol in the, the wine would purify the water. And so it was often common for the, all of the, the drinking water during that day in ancient Israel and also in Israel during Jesus' day to be mixed with wine as a purification agent there. The, the water mixed with wine could be anywhere from three parts to one part all the way from 20 parts to one part. And so it could be quite diluted. But that's why the wine was one of the three building blocks of the Jewish diet. It was a, it was a safety measure for them. It helped them make sure that their water was clean. But the other thing about wine is wine represented joyfulness and celebration. It was always there and present at feasts and weddings like it is here. It was something that was used in celebration, and it was, as we'll come to see later on, it even had messianic kingdom implications for it too. So Israel had a special relationship to wine, and it would have been expected that it would be there at the wedding. Not only expected, but the groom's family had a responsibility to make sure that the wine wouldn't run out, to make sure that what happens right here wouldn't happen. And this is a, a big deal. Think about it for a minute. Ladies, you can probably relate to this a little bit more than the men in the room, but imagine hosting a party and having the main course run out before all your guests went through and were able to get their food. You would feel a little bit of what the, the host family would have felt at this point, about a little bit of what Mary was feeling at this point. That sense of, oh man, I, I dropped the ball. I should have stepped up. I should have made sure there was enough. But in this day, it went even further than that. Because the wine was so imperative that the groom's family was open to a legal lawsuit from the bride's family if they failed to provide enough wine for the wedding. Beyond that, that, that that's talk about tension with in-laws. <laughs> Starting off a wedding by going, hey, we're going to sue you for not bringing enough wine, right? 
Beyond that, the stigma that would have been attached to the, the bride and groom would have followed them potentially, in some cases, throughout the rest of their lives. People would have looked down upon them because they weren't able to carry out and, and fulfill their end of the bargain by providing enough wine in the wedding. So we may read this and go, okay, they ran out of wine. Is this really the end of the world? Well, in some ways, for them, yes, it was a big, big problem. And so that's why Mary goes to Jesus and tells him they've run out of wine. But that's puzzling, isn't it? Because if this is the first miracle that Jesus does, then what did Mary expect Jesus was going to do at this point? Why did Mary go to Jesus? Well, I think Mary knew enough about him. Remember, after all, she had the angelic announcement of his birth. And you remember what Luke's gospel says, that Mary treasured all those things up in her heart. She was storing them up. She knew that this child that she was going to give birth to was not just going to be a normal, regular, everyday child, but there was something significant about him. Mary also, I'm sure, understood and, and heard rumor of, if she wasn't there, what happened at Jesus' baptism. When the heavens opened and the Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus and the voice came out and said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Mary probably understood that there was something significant about Jesus from that point as well. Beyond that, there was also John's testimony. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Mary, I think, understood, knew enough, not, not that she expected him to do what he does, but I think she knew enough that this is her son, that he could solve the problem. There was a need and he could meet it. And so Mary is trusting Jesus here. Jesus' response to her seems somewhat cold. Men, I would not recommend that you respond to your wives the way that Jesus responds to his mom. Students, don't call your mom woman, okay? Let's, let's not do that here. At this time, it was appropriate. It was not a derogatory comment. It was not a term of disrespect. It was a term that distanced Jesus from his mom. So he is communicating something here by calling her woman. The Greek word there is, is one that would have implied a separation. In, it's not one that would have been common to call your mother by that name. And yet, Jesus is showing, I think, that there's a little bit of a, a shift in relationship that's taking place. Not that he doesn't care about his mom. Because remember, on the cross, what does Jesus do? He looks at John, the author of this gospel, and says, Behold your mother, mother, behold your son. He entrusts Mary's care to John to make sure that Mary would be cared for in what was to come. So it's not that Jesus doesn't care about his, his mom, but he's saying to her, look, there's a separation here, and it's further implied by the question he asks. He says, what does this have to do with me? It's, what is this between you and I? In other words, Jesus is saying, why are you asking me this? What are you after here? And he's, he's alluding to, I think, what Mary's purpose was. Mary knew that he was going to be the Messiah. He, she understood that. Again, she had treasured these things up in her heart. And I think at this point, she's going, okay, Now's the time. Let's go, Jesus. Here was the baptism. We, we, I found out what happened in the baptism. She probably had heard about the, the wilderness temptation at this point in time, the 40 days. And now she's ready for Jesus to be the Messiah that she was expecting. But Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come. And that's what he's responding. He says, this is not the time. You want me to step into the spotlight and be the Messiah and, and publicly establish myself as the Messiah through dealing with this problem that's facing this, this couple but Mary, you need to understand this is not my time. My hour, that's a phrase that is going to repeat itself in John's gospel. The hour will come. And in fact, in John chapter 17, verse 31, or chapter 17, verse 1, rather, we read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
Here it is. The hour has come. Well, what was Jesus facing at that moment? The cross. The, the hour of the glorification of the Son of God, the ultimate revelation of his role as the Messiah would come at the cross, not at a wedding in Cana. And that's what he's telling Mary. Mary's response is admirable. It's one of humility and trust in her son. Because she looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Spoiler alert, Jesus is going to bring the wine. This is the, the first of his, his miracles. But this wasn't to flex, and this wasn't to, to, to show people how he could do this cool trick by turning water to wine. In fact, this is what John calls it. This was a sign. And John's careful to use that terminology. And I think as we think about the, the signs in the Gospel of John, we need to understand that he's communicating something deeper than what first meets the eye. He's trying to communicate something to us theological about Jesus. He's trying to tell us something about the Son of God who is doing these miracles, working these mighty works, and that's why he calls them signs. In fact, it lines up with his purpose statement in John 20, verses 30 and 31. In verse 30, he said, Jesus did many other signs, but in verse 31, but these signs, these ones are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So these are signs meant to create faith, to produce faith in those with eyes to see and ears to hear. These are signs meant to reveal something deeper about Jesus. And so what was Jesus telling us by turning water to wine? Was he meeting a need for this couple? Yeah, he was meeting a need for this couple. But I think what Jesus was communicating on a much grander scale is that he could not only meet this need that presented itself there at the wedding, that they needed wine and Jesus could do that. I think what Jesus was communicating and I think what John was communicating through choosing to record this particular sign is that Jesus can meet a need far greater than running out of a wine supply at a wedding. That Jesus can meet our greatest need, which is that we need forgiveness through his ultimate hour, the death and resurrection on the cross. Our first point this morning is this, trust fully in Jesus to provide. Trust fully in Jesus to provide. The family needed wine, right? In, in the Old Testament even, there, there's, there's something even bigger than just the societal taboo of running out of wine at a wedding. In the Old Testament, the absence of wine was the sign of divine disfavor. Divine disfavor. We read this in Deuteronomy 28, 39. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes for the worm shall eat them. This is in the cursings side of the blessing cursing paradigm that Jesus, or that, that God gives Israel rather, where he says, if you will obey me, here's the blessings. But if you are disobedient, here are the cursings. And part of the disfavor of God is that there is no wine for them to drink. Amos 5 communicates something similar where the prophet says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. And so the, the absence of wine is a sign of divine disfavor. Conversely, the presence of wine is a sign of divine blessing. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Wine was a, a sign of divine blessing when it was present. 
And, and so there's something deeper perhaps going on even there with the family that, that they ran out of wine and this concept of disfavor and the, the blessing of God. And, and here's the reality, y'all. We don't need wine this morning. We need forgiveness this morning. See, we have a problem in that we have drawn the divine disfavor of God because of our sinfulness, which is true of all of us in this room, that we have rebelled against God, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what has that done? That has created an infinite chasm between us and a holy God, a chasm that cannot be bridged no matter how many good works we do, no matter how many times we show up at church, no matter how much we look across the aisle at somebody else and think that we're better than that person might be. That gap is insurmountable in our own efforts. We needed Jesus to meet that need. And he did that in his hour by dying on the cross for our sins. He satisfied God's full disfavor, his wrath against us. Jesus died in our place and absorbed the full wrath of God. And then he rose from the dead three days later so that we will live with him forever in eternity. See, that's what Jesus has done to meet our need. We had the divine disfavor of our sinfulness that drew the wrath of God. We were in need of the divine blessing of the provision that comes with Jesus. And here's the thing, it only comes through Jesus. Let me ask you, when you need new tires for your car, where do you go to get new tires? When you need a haircut, where do you go to get your haircut? When you need a good burger, where do you go to get a good burger? Well, when you need new tires, you go to the tire store. You go to Costco. You go somewhere. You go to a place that has tires to put tires on the car. You're not going to go to McDonald's to get tires on your car because you know McDonald's doesn't have tires. They can't meet the need. When you need a haircut, you're not going to go to Costco to get a haircut. Although maybe at some point they'll have a barber shop in Costco. But not yet. No, you're going to go to a barber to get your haircut because the barber is going to be the one that cuts your hair. It's what they do. They're there to meet that need. When you need a good burger, then you're going to go to McDonald's. No? In-N-Out and Whataburger? You guys can fight about that later. We'll divide the church. A house divided, right? No, you're going to go somewhere that makes good burgers to get a good burger. You're not going to walk into the barber and say, I need a double quarter pounder with cheese. The barber's going to look at you like you lost your mind. But y'all, we sometimes do that spiritually with the need that we have for forgiveness. When we need forgiveness, there's one place that we can turn to, and that's Christ. Nowhere else, and no one else. And see, some of us go in search of forgiveness in places where it can't be found. Some of you look for forgiveness in, in showing up at church and somehow that your, your spiritual coffers are going to be stacked in your favor because you've attended church for a couple months straight. And so that makes up for a sin that you've been harboring and not willing to bring into the light to confess. Some of you look for forgiveness in good deeds. You, you've bought into the concept of karma, though maybe you don't call it that. Well, if I do enough good, then the bad that I've done will be covered over by the good that I do. We can't do that. It won't. Some of you are looking for forgiveness in just general apathy. You just don't care. You're apathetic and you think, well, if I'm apathetic about it, then eventually I'll just forget about it and be able to move on with my life. 
Some of you are looking for forgiveness in comparison. Hey, I'm not as bad as that person is over there, so I'm okay. You're not. One sin separates us for all of eternity from God. And there's none of us in the room, the one behind this pulpit, at the top of that list, who are exempt from sin. We all need it, and it can only be found in Christ. And we chase it from everywhere else, looking for it, hoping for it, pleading for it, looking for, for, for forgiveness and, and acceptance, and that we can ease the pain of our, our conscience instead of going to where it can only be found, which is Jesus. We need to trust in Jesus to meet the need. Jeremiah 2, 13, the prophet says this, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, that God was lamenting through the prophet that though he was there in offering Israel restor- restoration and forgiveness, if they would repent and return to him, instead the people were forsaking him, the fountain of living waters, and choosing the stagnant water of a broken cistern that can hold no true water to begin with. Paul talks about this problem as well in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you seeking now to be perfected by the flesh? Are you now trusting yourself to be right with God after you were begun by the Spirit? The Spirit was the one that regenerated you, that, that gave you the faith to believe in the first place. See, the problem, Christians, is, is for us as well. It's not that we need to go to Jesus and trust in Jesus to fully provide at the moment of salvation. Yes, yes, we need that 100%. That's what I've been talking about to this point. But Christians, we need to keep going to Jesus as the one who can only provide for our forgiveness. We need to keep turning to him and not trusting in our flesh to now all of a sudden pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and think that we're good because we walked an aisle or prayed a prayer and so we're fine and now we can just trust our own self-righteousness. See, we still need forgiveness from Jesus and the good news is, y'all, that he's still there to provide it. And so let me plead with you and ask you this morning, maybe you have some unconfessed sin in your life this morning that God might be putting his finger on in your heart right now that you need to bring to him and confess and ask for forgiveness and realize and trust that he will fully forgive. Or maybe you've been trusting in that self-righteousness, the old system, to be enough for you. And God's pressing in on you this morning and you're feeling that weight of going, well, maybe I, maybe I'm not good enough. And look, I, I love you enough to, this morning to tell you you're not. That if you're trusting in being a good person and today is your last day on earth, you will spend eternity in hell apart from God. That's true of everyone. Unless we trust Jesus to provide. And that's the good news. He's there and he's provided. And that's what we see as we continue in our text. Look at verse 6. There were these six stone water jars there for the rites of the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Okay, these jars, let's talk about them for a second. 
six stone water jars, and they're there for the Jewish rites of purification. They're there, in other words, for the, the washing, the ceremonial washing that they would go through, and they would wash the utensils, they would wash their hands, and, and they would want to make sure that they were ceremonially clean before sitting down to eat. So here's these jars. They're sitting there in this back room at the wedding. The wedding feast is already happening, so chances are everybody has washed their hands in these jars on the way in, and they've washed the utensils, so the, the water in these jars is, is not good in, in, that, that anyone else is going to want to partake in and, and drink right now, right? Jesus says to the servants, hey, fill them up. Fill them up. Were they empty? Maybe. Maybe they had been thrown out and they were ready to be reused later. Or maybe they had a little bit in them. Regardless, Jesus chooses these jars that represented the old system and says, fill them up. And so the, the servants fill them up and it says they, they filled them up to the brim. Now, I think that was under the instruction of Jesus. Because you and I aren't going to fill our cups right up to the brim, right? Your kid comes to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, can I have a glass of water? No parent in their right mind is going to fill the cup up to the brim and hand it to their child to just slosh all over the place, right? So they fill them up, and I think Jesus' instructions here is significant, that they fill them up to the brim. Why? Well, I think Jesus, again, is, is after something deeper than what we read on the surface. Again, what were these jars used for? The Old Testament rite of purification. In fact, this was part of the oral law. This wasn't even part of the written law. This is part of the Pharisaical tradition that had been so heavy on the people up until this time. And Jesus says, fill up these jars. And they fill them to the brim. Question, what did Jesus say that he came to do with the law? Did he come to replace it? He came to fill it, to fulfill it. Here you have these six jars used for law-based purposes. Jesus says, fill them up. Keep going in verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the water's drawn out and, and taken to the, the master of ceremonies, the head waiter. Somewhere between seven and eight, the miracle takes place. The water turns to wine. And this is the wow factor here. During this era, the, the process for creating wine, the, the grapes would have been, um, would have been pressed. And the, the musk, when it comes into contact with the, the juice and the air and everything else, the fermentation process for the wine uh, making in, in this season would have taken about 6 to 12 hours. And then they would have given it another 3 or 4 days before they considered the wine ready to drink. Jesus gets wine that's good wine, and he does it instantaneously. He doesn't even say anything. He just thinks, and the water is made into wine. This is the wow factor. And as we might expect, it's not just any wine. This is the good wine. We might expect the exceptional quality from Jesus in anything that he does. And it causes the, the master of ceremonies, this head waiter, to come to the bridegroom, who at this point I don't think knows anything bad has happened yet because Mary's intervened. He's just having a great time with his bride. Here comes the master of ceremonies to him and says, let me commend you. Usually, everybody serves the good wine at the beginning, and then when people have drunk freely, okay? Read what you will into that phrase. When people are feeling good about themselves, when palates might be a little bit less refined, let's put it that way, right? Then comes the two-buck chuck, right? 
Then comes the, the bad stuff. Then comes the stuff that nobody cares about, the cheap wine, because at that point, everybody's just looking to, to keep the party going. Nobody's looking for the, the refinement and the, the sommelier experience. But this guy says, that's not what you've done. You've saved the best wine until now. And think about that for a moment, because I'm sure this groom did serve the good wine first. And yet this was even better than that. This was far more impressive than that. So Jesus moves to meet this need. There's no wine. There's a risk here. They had a need. They were going to face shame, maybe a lawsuit. But deeper than that, we talked about our need that we have. Jesus meets the need by looking at the Old Testament jars and having them filled to the top and then replaces it with wine, something, by the way, that he will use to inaugurate the new covenant in the upper room with his disciples. This cup represents the new covenant in my blood. You remember that? What was in the cup? Wine. Old is filled up. The new now is here. The new is replacing what the old used to be and what the old used to do. See, Jesus doesn't do anything at random. Everything that we see from our Savior is calculated. For his disciples and perhaps the servants who were also eyewitnesses to this event, Jesus was communicating that he had come to replace the old with the new and in an abundant fashion. Point number two this morning is this. Rest securely in the abundance of his provision. Rest securely in the abundance of his provision. It's not just that we trust him to provide, but when he provides, he provides abundantly. He brings the good wine, so to speak. There are words that are used in Scripture to describe us as followers of Jesus. Chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed, cleansed, washed, sanctified, guarded, justified, loved, heard, welcomed, freed, regenerated, reconciled, emboldened, called, purified, equipped. There's more. The, the abundance of his provision, it's not just that you've been brought back to square one with God. It's not just even that your sins have been forgiven, but he's done far more for us than just that. Jesus didn't just go get the box wine and put it out on the table. He made the best wine. See, Jesus is provided in such a way that is, is, is vastly different than if you remember Mario Brothers. How many people played Mario Brothers at some point in time? Okay, some of you, the rest of you are, are just too ashamed to raise your hands right now, and that's okay. But, but here's the thing about Mario Brothers. What's the best thing that you can get when a hundred coins will get you what? A one-up, an extra life, Right? And you want extra lives. And some of you knew how to cheat the system, and there were ways that you could just keep getting extra coins. And some of y'all were playing the game with a thousand extra lives, and you weren't playing a game, you were, you were a walking cheat code at that point. But what happened with the extra life? Why was the extra life so valuable in Mario Brothers? Because when you died, when you fell through the, the random chasms that were just everywhere, aren't we glad that life isn't like Mario Brothers, that there's not just unending, unending pits that we might fall into? There's a lot of reasons why we're glad, but that's one of them. But when you jump and you fall into that pit, and the little character comes up on the screen, what happens with the one-up? You, here's the, the modern terminology, you respawn. That's a weird word, by the way. You, you get a second chance, or a hundredth chance, depending on how good you are at the game, or bad, I guess. But your guy, your character, pops back up on the screen. 
as though nothing ever happened. And now he can get to, to run again, okay? That's, that's not what Jesus did for us. He didn't give us a bank of one-ups in life. Because the problem with that is when, when I'm respawned in Mario Brothers, I still have the same enemies and obstacles threatening me in front of me. I have the same problem, and I still have to trust in myself to finish the rest of the level. No, no, no. Jesus didn't respawn you and say, good luck this time when it comes to your relationship with God. Jesus won the game for you and gave you the credit. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. The full righteousness of God credited to your account. Maybe a a different illustration for you. You go out and rack up a a massive debt, okay, in, in credit cards, and you are ready to file bankruptcy. You can't make the payment because your bank account is zeroed out and as as little as you have in your bank account, the, the inverse is true for how much credit card debt you have racked up. Along comes someone to you, and they not only pay off your credit card debt, but they put $4 million in your bank account. See, which would you rather have? Someone just come pay off your credit card debt and put you back at square one, or to fill up your bank account as well to give you resources that you're going to need moving forward? You see, that's what we have in Christ. He has put his righteousness into our account. Not $4 million of his righteousness, an infinite degree of his righteousness. And that's what I mean, that he has abundantly provided for us. Jesus made 130, 160 to 180, rather, gallons of wine instantaneously. I'm thinking they didn't go through all of it before the end of that party. What was Jesus trying to prove? He was showing that he was a a God who could uh, supply for our need in super abundance. So what does this mean for us? We're forgiven. What else? Let me just rattle off some things for us. I I mentioned some descriptions. Here's some present benefits that you and I have that we are, are, have because Jesus has provided for us in abundance. You have bold access to the Father. Hebrews chapter 4. Let us boldly approach that we might find grace and mercy to help in time of need. You have a living God to worship. We sang of that earlier. We worship and serve a living God, a resurrected Savior. That's a benefit and a blessing that we have. You have the living word of God to live by. You've got the scriptures. You've got the word of God to live our lives by. You have a hope in the midst of suffering that has been provided for you because of the cross. You have a peace that surpasses understanding. Philippians 4, a peace that is not circumstantial. You have brothers and sisters in Christ who love you selflessly. Because in dying, he shed his blood, Acts 20, for the church. You have brothers and sisters to love selflessly. You have the encouragement of others. This is a sermon in and of itself, but you have the Holy Spirit because of Christ on the cross. You remember what Jesus told his disciples? It's better for you that I go away. Come again? It's better for you that I go away because if I go away, then comes the Spirit. 
because of Christ and his super abundance of provision, you and I have the Spirit and all that that entails. You have the armor of God to take up against the enemy because of Christ. You have pastors and shepherds who love you because of Jesus. You have an elder brother in Christ who has run the race before you, the author and perfecter of your faith because of Jesus. You have a great high priest who lives to make intercession for you. You have full assurance of faith, as the writer of Hebrews says multiple times. Let us draw near in full assurance of faith. And that's yours because of Jesus. You have the promise that God is for you. If God is for us, what's the rest of it say? Who can be against us? God is for you because of Jesus. You have the promise that nothing will separate you from his love, Romans 8. Because of Jesus. You have joy in trials because of Jesus. You have a living hope because of Jesus. You have a future inheritance because of Jesus. You have a promise that God is guarding you by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter chapter 1, because of Jesus. You have the promise of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, because of Jesus. You have the hope of heavenly reward, well done my good and faithful servant, because of Jesus. You have a future without tears because of Jesus. You have a purpose in life because of Jesus. You have a mission to accomplish because of Jesus. Do you see, y'all, he's done so much more abundantly than we often think about in our lives. It begins with the fact that he shed his blood for our sins and he rose from the dead so that we can live with him forever. And that is the pinnacle. That is the greatest thing that Jesus has ever done for us. But it's not the only thing that he's ever done for us. He is supplying for our needs in a super abundance. And my question for you this morning is, are you looking for that? Are you seeing that in your life? That Jesus has done that for you. That we can trust him to fully provide and not just provide to get us back to square one, but that abundance that overflowing grace that we get because of Christ. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's what we're talking about here this morning. How will he not with him also graciously give us all things? And so we can rest securely in the abundance of the provision of Christ. Again, church, Jesus has better wine for you this morning. Better than what the world offers. He didn't just bring the two buck chuck. And he didn't just get us back to square one with the Father. He forgave us and gave us his righteousness and gave us all of the blessings contingent upon that. Jesus turns water to wine. Verse 11 This is the first of his signs. John makes it plain for us. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The first of his signs. Again, signs. The word is intentional. John uses it intentionally because he's communicating that Jesus is doing something more than meets the eye. That's what we've been talking about this morning. And the disciples get it because they, they see it and they believe. But in doing this sign, what does it say there? He manifested his glory. Now, there's a lot going on in the world right now about manifestation. Most of it's not good. 
Most of it's not what we're talking about here. Uh, Manifestation in our culture is this belief that you can improve your life by focusing on something and believing in it enough that you attract that thing to your life. You need to manifest good fortune in your life. You need to manifest that promotion that you want at work. You need to manifest that husband or wife that you want. You want, need to manifest the change in them that you want to see. You, want to, you need to, man, and it's, it's this weird new age repackaging of the name it and claim it movement. Do you remember the name it and claim it movement, right? I'm going to name this and claim that God is going to give me that blessing. It, it, it's a, a, a mystical repackaging of the prayer of Jabez. Remember when that got popular, right? Somebody wrote the book and then it started selling like crazy and God expand my territories and everything else. It's, it's now creeping in the church through this idea of manifestation, that I can manifest blessings in my life if I just focus on it enough. That's not what we're talking about here. No, when it says here that he manifested his glory, it's the biblical concept of that, which means he revealed it. But it's not just a revelation in the sense of he's showing it to us. It's a, it's a revealing that imparts at the same time some degree of knowledge and experience of that which is revealed. And so he's revealing in that sense his glory. We read about other things being manifested in scripture in Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Again, it's been revealed not just so that we see it there. But we see it and get to experience it as well. We get to partake in it. 1 Timothy 3.16, also great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. There he's revealed in the flesh. But it's not just that we saw him and what was concealed is now seen, but that it's seen and experienced. And so here Jesus is manifesting his glory. It's not just that he's showing it, but that he's inviting the disciples, the followers, and also us by nature of the fact that we get to sit here and read about it some 2,000 years almost later. He's inviting us into the experience of the revelation of himself and his glory. And that's going to be what he does as he continues in the book. He manifested his glory. Back in John chapter 1, John wrote it there that, that we have seen his glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father. This is what John was alluding to as he began to pull the curtain back on who he really was. But what was it that his glory was revealing here? What about his glory were we supposed to see and be invited into? Well, in part, it was that he is the Lord of creation, right? He takes water and makes it wine. Only the God of the universe can change the chemical makeup of water and, and change its, its, its H2O qualities to make whatever wine is, H2O red, or whatever the, the, the physical designation is. It probably doesn't even have anything. I'm not a scientist, by the way. I'm a theologian. The Lord of, the, the God of the universe is the only one that can do that. The one who said, let there be light and there was light, is the one that can take water and make wine. And so there's an element there that we're seeing, okay, Jesus is God by just turning water to wine. Yeah. When have you ever seen anyone else do that? They can't. Because why? Because he's the Lord of the universe. So there's that. But there's also what he does. He didn't turn it into Welch's grape juice, y'all. He didn't turn it into milk. He turned it into wine. You might say, well, that's because that's what Mary asked him for. Yeah, fair. But why wine? What else might be at work here? Well, let me suggest this. Joel chapter 3, verse 18. I know you haven't memorized. It's your favorite verse in the Bible. But in case you don't, I've got it up on the screen there. And I'll read it for us. 
I'm joking, by the way. Nobody, I don't think, has Joel 3.18 memorized in the room. If you do come up to me, maybe I'll take you out for a cup of coffee this week and you can share with me your memory ta- tactics because uh, I'm curious. Joel 3.18, and in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. What day is he talking about there? In that day, what day? This is a forward-looking prophecy that is anticipating the millennial kingdom and all the joys and the triumph that is going to come at that time. The blessing of God that's going to be represented here. And how is it represented? It's represented by the wine that's dripping from the mountains. Amos 9 as well says something similar. Amos 9, 14. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. This is looking forward to the millennial kingdom. Jesus says this with his disciples in the upper room after the, the, the last supper. He says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine. He's talking about wine there. Until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So what is Jesus doing here? Don't miss it, y'all. He's turning water to wine, and in so doing, he's letting the disciples know that the messianic age is coming. The messianic age is coming, and all of the blessings contained therein. Is it going to come while he's there on earth in this first appearance? No. And it hasn't come since there yet, but it will come. It is coming, and you and I can trust in that. In fact, there's a day coming for us as the church called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will join with him as he drinks from the fruit of the vine with us there in eternity. Until that day, what are we called to do? Point number three this morning, church, is this. Wait joyfully. Wait joyfully for the full enjoyment of his provision. Wait joyfully for the full enjoyment of his provision. Wait joyfully. Words purposeful, intentional there. And it's not because life is easy right now. I understand that it's not. First Peter 4.12 said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. There's pain, there's suffering, there's trials in this life. It's not that this point is that there's not trials in this life. Some of you are walking through that right now. You've lost a loved one. You've lost a job. Life has dropped one of those unexpected surprises in your lap. Maybe your spouse isn't saved and you're experiencing tension with them on on how to raise the, the children. Maybe your adult children aren't interested in Christianity despite all your prayers and petitions that God would save them. Maybe you got your dream job and your dream house and your dream car and your dream everything and yet you can't find contentment in any of it. Maybe you're anxious about the current state of affairs in our world and afraid of what might be waiting around the corner. Maybe you've just found out that your spouse has been unfaithful to you. Whatever it is, we could have open mic for the next hour and hear from everybody in the room and and there would be no shortage of trials that are represented here in this room. And so why in the world say wait joyfully? Because I want you to hear this this morning, church. I want you to hear John 16, when Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. What does he say next? In the world you will have what? You will have tribulation. Jesus, your Savior, this morning, I want you to hear him tell you that if you are suffering, church, it's okay. He said it was going to happen. 
This is not strange. This is why Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Jesus said it was going to come. But what does he say right after that? But take heart. I have what? I've overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, there are trials. Yes, there is tribulation. Yes, there is the pain and the sorrow. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And I think that's some of the glory that we're seeing from Jesus in John chapter 2 when he turns the water to wine. I think he's telling his disciples who really have no idea what's facing them over the next three years of their ministry with Jesus, let alone the rest of their service of him through planting churches and most of them giving their lives for their faith in Jesus. I think he's laying the groundwork to tell them, hey, you know what? There's a day coming when we're going to enjoy this together. The messianic age, it's around the corner. And church, that same age is around the corner for us as well. And that's why we can take heart because he's overcome the world. Still, even though we find trials, I want you also to think on the flip side that you experience glimpses of this joy even here and now, don't you? Seeing your baby smile at you when you walk in the room in the morning. It's a glimpse of the joy that is waiting for us. Enjoying that first sip of coffee in the morning. For my coffee drinkers out there, the rest of you who are strangers and aliens, I don't understand. But experiencing that first sip of coffee in the morning when you sit down with your Bible, that, that joy that you have, there's a glimpse and it's a foretaste of the joy that's coming. Having lunch with that friend who just fills you up with encouragement is a glimpse of the joy that's coming. Finishing a project at work and beating the deadline. Yes, even that is a glimpse of the joy that's coming. Going for a run in the cooler weather is a glimpse of a joy that's coming. Tasting that Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream, that's a glimpse of the joy that's coming. See, as you experience the glimpses of joy this week, I want you to remember that it's not the good wine yet. The good wine's coming but it's okay to enjoy them as a foretaste. And that's why this point is what it is, to wait joyfully. David says in Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. We need to stop looking for that here because David just told us where it is. It's with the Lord. It's coming. So the joy that we have here, thank God for it. Praise God for it. Enjoy it. But let it throw your mind and your heart and your affections forward into eternity for the ultimate fulfillment that's coming when we get to be with him. Wait joyfully for the enjoyment of his provision. Our greatest need has been met in abundance by Jesus, who secured our future for us, a future that we joyfully await for as we continue our lives in the here and now. It's no fun sitting in 115 degrees waiting for your car to get fixed. There's a lot of other things I'd rather do on this earth. Hoping that somehow the AAA guy is going to be able to get my car up and running. Church, there's, there's no hoping when it comes to Jesus. He's the answer. You have a need this morning. Whether your need is that you haven't come to Christ, and this morning is that opportunity. You need to come to him. You need to trust in him. You need to repent from your sins and put your faith in him, that he died on the cross from your, for your sins and that he has risen from the grave so that you can live with him forever, eternally. This morning, that message is there. The need is, is felt, I hope, I trust. The answer to that need is Jesus. 
Or maybe you're there this morning and you just need to be reminded of his provision in your life. That he's done far more than bring you back to square one. But he's given you so many blessings to be enjoyed in your relationship with the Lord. Or maybe you're walking through that valley and you need to be reminded of the joy that's coming. There's no hoping, I I hope Jesus will come through on those things. He has and he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the reality of it. We thank you for the good news contained in it. Lord, we thank you that the old way has been fulfilled by Jesus for us, that we're no longer sitting here uh, trying to abide by commandments and rules and regulations to hopefully be acceptable and justified in your sight. We're grateful for the cross, that the full wrath of God was satisfied therein for us, that we've got nothing left to fear if we've come to you, if we've trusted in you, if we've brought our our need to you to have it met by you. And Lord, that's the, the hope that we have this morning. It's a hope that's a sure hope. Like the writer of Hebrews said, we are holding fast to our confession. We are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has brought it to completion already. We're here this morning trusting that we are being guarded by your power through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Lord, these are the things that we hope in. And so we walk, and some are walking through trials and tribulations and heartache right now and anxiety and fear. And God, I pray that this morning you would speak to them in a powerful way through your word to remind them that their story is not done. It's written, but it's not done. That's its final chapter is with you. And that nothing that is going on right now in this life, on this earth, in their lives, can change that reality. Lord, you are a living hope. We're so grateful for that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.